have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Hello to you. If you're watching this in the Shuram site, at the Villas, at the Oasis site, at Clarendon Centre, or indeed watching this online, pleasure to be speaking to you once again. Just a heads up, it's 69 days until Christmas. That's uh, all part of the service here. We like to get you planning well in advance. You might want to be starting your Christmas shopping, spread the cost of it in this climate in which we live. We are uh, in the middle, really, of this New Testament letter of Philippians that we've been looking at this term. And the passage that you have just heard is about the Incarnation about Jesus, the Son of God, being born into this world, born so that he may die on a cross for us. And uh, we celebrate the Incarnation at Christmas, and that's why I've mentioned that as we begin. Maybe you're someone who uh, is watching this and you're not a Christian. Maybe you're atheist, agnostic, or, or not sure. One of the questions that can come to mind is, well, these Christian claims, they say that God exists, but if that's the case, wouldn't God make himself more obvious to us? If he really existed, why doesn't God write his existence across the sky so that everyone can see him? Well, that's an important question to grapple with. And the Bible speaks of the revelation of God and that we see God clearly through Jesus Christ. And that idea that, well, God could make himself more obvious, we tend to ask that question because we want God to come to us on our terms, make things a bit more easy and straightforward to us. But what we see in the Bible is that's not really that high on God's agenda. God has chosen to reveal himself in his terms. And at first, that might not seem that obvious, perhaps, if we're thinking of a stable 2,000 years ago. But actually, that speaks of something of the nature of God, the character of, of what he is like, that he would come to us in humility. And his passage talks about that Jesus would come to us as a servant. And one of the features of that is perhaps we or society tends to overlook his importance. But yet, Jesus spoke about how God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. He has come to us in a humble way so that we might receive him. And the only way to receive him is to recognize our need of him, to come humbly to him. In order to receive this Jesus, we have to accept the service of a servant. We have to accept the forgiveness of a forgiver, accept the salvation of a saviour. And that is the Christian message. That is the good news of Jesus. The passage that we've just heard, which might be helpful if you have it open in front of you, if you have a Bible with you or on your phone, speaks of how in the future, 
everyone will see Jesus very obviously. And at that moment, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. That day is coming. But we also have Jesus 2,000 years ago coming in humility in order to win hearts, in order to demonstrate the self-giving, sacrificial love of God. And the incarnation speaks of that. And that's what Paul is unpacking in this passage of Philippians. As I said, it's, it's central to the letter, not just because it's in the middle of chapter 2, but it's actually all the instruction in the letter. And Paul gives lots of instruction, and we've been looking at uh, some of that in the last few weeks. It all hangs off of this description of who God is in Christ. It's kind of like a Christmas tree. Everything else hangs off this. And so it's an incredibly important passage that we are looking at today. And it's just three sentences long, but packed in there is a huge amount of what we call doctrine. Now, doctrine is a set of beliefs that are taught by the church. And In these just three sentences, we have the doctrine of the Trinity, talking about what God is like or who God is like, the doctrine of the incarnation, he's become like us, doctrine of the atonement, how we meet with with God through what Jesus has done, the doctrine of salvation, that Jesus is a saviour. And as I've already referred to, it also points to the doctrine of the second coming of Jesus, eschatology. Many... Probably more words have been written about this passage right through church history than any of us will read in our lifetimes. It's an incredibly important passage in the whole of the Bible and to Christian thought. So no pressure on me uh, this morning as I bring it to you. But I do appreciate that the idea of unpacking the doctrine of this passage, perhaps especially if you're new, doesn't seem that exciting. And maybe it even sounds a bit heavy. But what we're going to do by looking at this passage in detail, really, we're just delving in to the nature of God and what he's done for us. (laughs) And I hope you'll therefore find it is of great interest to all of us, wherever we are on our journey of faith. And even perhaps my hope and prayer is that it will be life-changing for you wherever you are at. So what we're going to do, we're going to dive into it. And well, where do we start? Well, I think we'll approach it, as they say, the way you would approach eating an elephant, (laughs) one piece at a time. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to start with verse five and take it a little piece at a time. Have this mind among yourselves, writes the Apostle Paul, which is yours in Christ Jesus. If you've been with us the last few weeks, We've been already thinking about this idea. This passage flows on from what Paul has already said to these Philippian Christians, talking about how their behavior, the way they live, must stem from the transformation of their mind, their attitude. They've seen something in God, the revelation of what Jesus has done for them has come to them. That's changed their mind. And Paul writes elsewhere, Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of the mind. The Christian life is not one where we just try and perform certain behaviours. No, it's a renewed way of thinking about life, about ourselves, about God, that leads to a different way of living. And Paul's been 
Speaking of that already, but here in this passage, he matches the mind that we should have to say, actually, this renewed mind, it's not just something in a textbook. Actually, it's, we're, we're getting to the mind of Christ. Our minds are being transformed to become like his mind. And in a wonderful way, this is, Paul is explaining to us that this gospel-shaped mind is like the mind of Christ. We have an insight here into the, the incarnation. That, that's what God has in mind. It's God's idea. The, the thought that the solution to the sin and the brokenness of the world would be that God, the Son of God became a man to die for the sin of the world. That's not a human idea. Only God could have thought of that. And he has woken us up to this wonderful mystery. And it says the angels long to look into this wonderful salvation that God has wrought for us through Christ. The Christian mind is to be shaped in the image of God's mind. We've all had the experience, perhaps, whether it's with work colleagues or with friends or with our spouse, on a certain subject, you realize that the way you think about it is just very different. <laughs> the way you approach it is just very different. Maybe in a, in a work context, you've been having a meeting about stuff and you spend endless hours of meeting talking about a problem and you can't agree on a solution. And it turns out the reason that you can't agree on the solution is because people think about the problem in completely different ways. They're coming with completely different agendas. Well, the Bible says that the thoughts of God are very different to our thoughts. But he redeems our thinking to make us understand the way he looks at the world. And one of these great mysteries is the incarnation. And therefore we can't be actually godly unless we think God's thoughts after him, as it has once been said. The mind have this mind amongst yourselves. That is yours in Christ Jesus. It goes on there in verse 6. Who though... He was in the form of God. Okay, we're getting into the perhaps controversial bit. The form of God. I have to be really careful here in what I say and how I communicate it to you. What does the form of God sound like to you? Paul is saying Jesus he's the, it was in the form of God. Is he saying Jesus is God? Or is he saying he's just appearing to us and he looks like God? Or maybe Jesus is one of, one of many forms that God can take. And that idea is perhaps one that you've come across. Sometimes it is said, well, when we're trying to understand the Trinity, the Bible reveals God as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And that's a very difficult idea and concept for us to grasp. And sometimes... Perhaps well-meaning people try to simplify it to give us an illustration that will help. And maybe you've heard that. Well, God is like water, H2O. It can be a liquid, it can be a gas, steam, and it can be a solid, like ice. So it's all H2O, but it can be in three different forms. And that's what God is... Please don't say that. <laughs> Please don't tell people that. Please don't teach your children that. It's not, it's not helpful. Because what that is saying is that, well, God just has different forms and he just appears at different times in different ways. That's not at all what the Bible says that God is like. 
The Bible plainly contradicts that idea. We only need to look at an example like Jesus' baptism. If you know that story, Jesus is baptized, and in that moment, he comes out of the water, and the voice of his Father from heaven saying, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased, and the Spirit descends on him like a dove, says the Scripture. So there we have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all together, all at the same time. The Trinity is not God turning up at different times in different places in different ways. No, it's one God, Father, Son, and Spirit simultaneously. And in fact, that is exactly what Paul is explaining here. He was in the form of God. Let me focus our attention on that word, was. The New Testament, this letter included, was originally written in Greek, and sometimes when we translate it to the English, we don't carry all the same meaning of the original text into the English words, and sometimes we can lose something. And when we see that word was, we need to understand it's not actually the standard verb to be, but actually it's to be characteristically. If you read this text in the NIV version, it's actually very helpful because it unpacks it a little bit and it says, being in very nature God. See, the Apostle Paul is saying Jesus was, no, in very nature God. And then when he uses the word form, we might think of that English word form, well, it's just like, it's maybe changeable. No, no, actually it means quite the opposite of that. That word form means the true and exact nature of something. Paul will use this word again when he's saying Jesus in the form of a servant. He's saying he really was and took the form of a servant. He really was a servant. It wasn't just an appearance. He was a servant. He is a servant. And in the same way, he is God. What Paul is clearly saying here is that Jesus has always, eternally existed as the second member of the Trinity. And the incarnation, therefore, is not God taking on a new form in order to appear as a man. It was Jesus, the pre-existent, second member of the Trinity, taking on flesh for our sake. Jesus became a human being, but he was, has always been a person. He became a human being, he's always been a person. Do you understand that? Sort of we do, sort of we don't. And that is a, that's the tension that we're in with the Trinity. Did not count, as we go on verse 6, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And what we see here is Paul continuing to show how Jesus is equal to the Father and to the Spirit in very nature God. Equality with God. He says, a thing, not a thing to be grasped. And by that he's talking about not the sense that Jesus, you know, needed to grasp onto, like it was out of his reach, being equal with the Father. No, not, not, not at all. He's actually saying that Jesus didn't need to cling to the privilege that went alongside being in very nature God. Because he's talking about the incarnation. And he's saying, actually, no, Jesus didn't cling to the privilege of his position, but let go of that in order to become a man. And perhaps an illustration here about a CEO of a company 
someone who's high up, who has all the perks of the job, the corner office, the parking space, the connections to get tickets to any sporting event or that sort of thing. We've perhaps all come across those TV programs, undercover boss or that sort of thing, where they, they, they go from their position of being the CEO at the top of the company and go down on the bottom rung of a company. They still are the CEO, but they lose all the trappings of it in order to work on the shop floor and see what it's like. <laughs> and what happens is that, as well as having to give up the perks, they actually get mistreated and not respected and all those sorts of things as other people in that position would. Or might think of a king, a king who becomes a pauper, who, who gives up the palace in order to put on pauper's clothes and walk around with others and people don't see him for who he truly is. He doesn't stop being king by doing that, but he loses the, the privileges and the trappings and the comfort. And that's what Paul is talking about, what Jesus has done. Exchange the, the glory and the comfort and the worship of angels that he, he has and always has had in heaven in order to, to take on the weakness of a human body. And the life that's lived on this earth, full, with, full of its disappointments, and grief, and human hunger, and obscurity, and mistreatment, and abuse, and betrayal, and pain, and ultimately, death. That's what Jesus has taken on by becoming a man, or being born amongst us in a stable, and living life as a man in this world. And I wanted to point out here as well, there's a, there's a wonderful contrast here in this idea of grasping. Jesus didn't grasp this and cling on to this privilege that he deserves by right. He let that go for our sake. And when we think about this idea of grasping, we will probably, if we know our Bibles, associate that with the beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, where we have the first people and God put Adam and Eve in this garden and said, you can take of, of any fruit and enjoy the wonder of, of the creation that I've made for you. But there's this one tree, don't take the fruit of that tree. And what happens, Genesis chapter 3, the enemy comes alongside Adam, Adam and Eve. And he says, tell, take, doesn't that fruit look good? The one that God has said not to take. You can, you can grasp it. You can take hold of it. And what does he say to them? He said, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God. And they grasp it. They disobey God. They, they sin. They take what is not rightfully theirs. And they sin. They disobey God. And that relationship between people and God is broken. And that sin enters the world. And what we see here is Jesus. The, the Bible calls him the, the second Adam. <laughs> He didn't grasp and just hold on to what he deserved. No, he let that go to take the place of us sinners. He didn't cling to the privilege of his position. He let that go to take on our sin. <laughs> the thing that had been caused by the grasp, the sinful grasping of our forefathers. He takes on that sin and weakness. There's a wonderful parallel there. Verse 7. You see, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So this is exactly 
what Paul is expressing here. Jesus taking the form of weakness, taking the form of a servant, becoming one of us. And that phrase is vitally important there as well, emptied himself. I was preparing this message in the last couple of weeks and I was a bit confused at first because I was reading my ESV translation, a physical copy that I had, and then I was looking at the ESV version online and it had it used two different phrases. They've obviously updated the phrase that they've used there. The, uh, if you're reading the NIV or an older physical copy of the ESV, you might come across, he made himself nothing. And they've changed it to become he emptied himself. Now, that phrase emptied himself is, is much more literal uh, for the Greek, trans, the Greek uh, version, original version of it. Now, <laughs> we're getting into some detail here, but I think it is important. Sometimes with the scriptural interpretation, it is a balancing act between what's a literal version of it and something that conveys the meaning of it. And it's, it's difficult to get it quite right because... I guess the problem, perhaps, of made himself nothing is we might read more into that phrase than is actually there. And this has been a problem, and maybe you've even come across it. Because if the, if the verse speaks of how he made himself nothing, it, that might give us the impression that Jesus lost something of his identity by becoming a man. And indeed, some Bible teachers that you may have heard well, might give you this impression. They want to so emphasize the humanity of Jesus that his divinity gets eroded. And some of you have heard teaching like that, perhaps, that Jesus was just, just really, in his earthly life, a man just empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the sense of him being the eternal Son of God gets completely erased almost. And that, that's not actually helpful, essentially because that's not what it says. Suggesting that Jesus gave up his divinity or laid aside his divinity in order to be born into this world is, is not actually here in the text at all. To say that, well, Paul says he emptied himself, and to say that, well, that means he, he, didn't, he stopped being the Son of God or the second person of the Trinity, that's a big step to take. That's not what he's saying. Paul is saying he didn't cling to the divine privilege, but that is not the same thing. What we have seen is that Paul has already emphasized the eternal divinity of Christ. Remember, we just seen that. <laughs> who was in the very nature, to be characteristically in the form of God, the true exact nature of God. So Paul has been already at pains to emphasize that Jesus is, was, and forever will be God. So is Christ the eternal God who stopped being God to become a man? No, that wouldn't make any sense with this context. What he is saying is that Christ, the eternal God, was the one who became a servant by becoming a man. And this is the glorious humility of Jesus. You see, this idea of emptying himself, well, what does it mean then? Well, actually, the context here shows that he actually gained something. Maybe this illustration is helpful how do you empty a glass of water? 
<laughs> well, you, you pour it out. And we've already been seeing over the last few weeks, this is exactly what Jesus has done. He's poured himself out for our sake. Jesus didn't empty himself of his divinity by becoming a man. He emptied his divine self into a human body by becoming a man. He took on flesh. He took on something, but he's pouring himself out in this wonderful humility. And I've gone into a lot of detail there. And I've maybe at pains to point out something. Why is he going on about this? This is important stuff. That Jesus, fully man, fully God, but has given himself for us. That's what's going on here. The King James Version says, He made himself of no reputation. He wasn't grasping that anyway. Such is his love. It's the nature of what he's done. He is fully God, fully man. Poured himself out. He didn't lose anything of himself. Took on the physicality of the human body for our sake. Let's continue our adventure through this passage. The end of verse 7 there, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And again, if we, as we read that, it's very possible to get misled. Oh, likeness of man in human form. Is that suggesting, well, he just kind of appeared a bit like a human being, but it wasn't really one. <laughs> well, again, the context dispels that idea straight away. Why? Because it says he died on a cross. If Christ did not become fully man, he could not die on the cross. The Bible says, John 4, 24, God is spirit. It also says that God is eternal. And therefore, if God is eternal and God is spirit, it's impossible for him to die. There's a logical inconsistency there. It's like saying dry rain. That, it doesn't work. God is spirit, God is eternal. But God takes on a human body in order to die. The incarnation has to happen in order for Jesus to die for our sins. And that is indeed what he has done. Do you see how this is, this is complex stuff, but it's the mind of God chosen to come amongst us. We couldn't make this stuff up. He's come to us in order, what, for some theoretical exercise? No, no, to die for sin. This is why it's important. This is why it's vital. You need to understand the point of Christmas is Easter. <laughs> the, the reason that he's come into this world is to die for the sins of the world. That's what it says plainly in Scripture. 1 Timothy 1.15 The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And Paul is in this passage referring to exactly that. He was obedient to the point of death. He's saying he lived a perfect life. He lived the life that we could not live. You and I, we don't live perfect lives. We don't live lives that are acceptable to the Father. He came 
and lived a perfectly obedient life for your sake because you couldn't do it. And yet, and for your sake, he died a sinner's death on the cross. Christ was born into this world to die for the sins of this world. So that although we die in him, we will have eternal life. That's the gospel. That's why this is vital. It's why it's important. It's why we need to understand this and revel in this. Christ has become like us in our physical flesh in order to die for the sins committed in flesh. That through faith in him, we have eternal life with our Saviour. And it's that <laughs> wonderful tone that leads us to these final, this final sentence that just really flows <laughs> from everything that has come before. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, I started this message with that question of why has not, why hasn't God made his existence more obvious to us? Well, I ask you now, do, do you see now, do you see why God has chosen this way to come into the world, to show himself to the world? Do you see the glory in the incarnation of Jesus Christ for our sake? He hasn't just told us that he exists. He's shown us what he, has, what he is like. He's shown us his heart of love to save us by becoming like us and dying for us. And when you see this, when you, you taste this, and it wins your heart to him, it wins your heart. He's done this for me. He's become like me. He's lived a perfect life that I couldn't live. He's died the death that I deserve for my sins. Jesus is Lord. <laughs> he is Lord. He deserves all the glory and praise. It wins your heart. And the, this last sentence speaks of the fact that, well, we now live between the first coming of Jesus as he's come in humility, come to show us the good news, the love of God expressed through his life and death and resurrection. And there's a second coming of Jesus and we live between those two events right now. And this passage speaks of this second point. When every knee will bow. And such a wonderful thing for us now to gladly bow the knee before him when we see what he has done in his first coming. But one day everyone will see him as he is. will see him as the glorious saviour. We'll see him as the judge of the whole world. And Paul is saying that every knee will bow. Every knee will be forced to the ground in a moment because they'll see the glorious Christ for who he is. Kings and queens will take off their crowns. Presidents will crumble to the floor. World leaders, business leaders, religious leaders, the rich and powerful, the poor and marginalized. Christ will appear and simultaneously everyone will bow before and recognize 
that Jesus is Lord. Every single language will utter the words, Jesus Christ is Lord. The atheists will bow down, the agnostics will bow down, the Muslims, the Jews, the Sikhs, the Buddhists, everyone will bow before Jesus. That's what Paul is saying here. (laughs) People in well-pressed suits, people in rags, people from cities, people from the remotest tribes in the jungle will see Jesus and will bow. Before that, that day's coming, friends. What does it say here? Even the dead. Even the dead, it says here, on the earth, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. We're eternal beings. Death is no escape from Jesus. In the second coming of Jesus, the dead will be raised and stand before the king of the universe. What a day. What a day this will be. We'll say at that time, Jesus is Lord. So the question now is, have you said it already? (laughs) Do you know him as Lord now? Have you bowed the knee voluntarily? You will one day, friend. Whoever you are, you'll bow to Jesus one day. (laughs) And I appeal to you now, see what he's done for you. In this first coming of Christ, 2,000 years ago, he died for your sin. He died for your brokenness. He died for your shame. He's risen to give you new life if you'd only receive him, if you'd only accept him, if you'd only come to him, if you'd only confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. He's come as a servant. He's come as a saviour. He's come in humility. Do you have the humility now to receive him? Don't wait. (laughs) He is Lord now. He's ruling and reigning over all things. And I say, come to him now. He's come for you. That's that's what this is about. He has come for you to save sinners, to forgive us of everything we've done wrong. He's come. Trust him with your life. Call out to him. Come to him today. Let me pray for us. King Jesus, we come to you today. We see with eyes of faith what you've done. We we confess you as Lord. We bow before we honour you, our wonderful King. And I want to pray, Lord, by your Spirit, would you right now gather those who have yet to say Jesus is Lord, who have yet to bow the knee, if they've been warmed in their heart, if they've felt the conviction of the, the truth of who you are, Lord God, Show them your grace in this moment that they might too confess you as Lord and King and join with the rest of us to saying, King Jesus, the Lord of all, he is our Lord and we worship him. Amen.